Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. We are preaching a series on the Holy Spirit as Baptists, and it has been surprising how little we understood or had heard about the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's lovely. And I've been uh, helping uh, Westside King's Church uh, preach. I've been preaching there for the summer and they're Pentecostal. So very huge cultural shift. Um, it's been lovely, but uh, I'm grateful. I also haven't done any of the sermons yet in the series because I've had so much um, support from uh, gifted awakeners uh, for the series. And so I, I'm I'm really grateful uh, for how where we've come from in this series and, and where we're going to go. Um, and so if you don't know, all of this has been based on uh, the day of Pentecost. On May 28th this year, Pentecost Sunday, uh, we preached about Pentecost. And this idea that the Holy Spirit comes rushing into the room and everyone has a like a tongue of flame upon them and uh, and then Peter stands up and reads from Joel too this idea that the Spirit uh, kind of comes rushing in and pours pours out the love of God completely and then we prophesy and have dreams and visions and this whole kind of content of that text which is a reading from Joel and we've kind of just been exploring that part by part so today and um, we're on the section and I will come back to this with the actual text but. Um, the idea that the Holy Spirit, uh, or God pours God's Spirit out upon children. You have your sons and daughters will prophesy. You have your old men and your young men will dream dreams and have visions. Um, and then there's this one phrase that says, um, and even the slaves will prophesy, or the, the enslaved ones, or if, if your English might say servant, because English-speaking cultures are still wrestling with a history of slavery. And Anyway. But we're, so we're going to kind of talk about the idea of uh, even people who are uh, on the margins or people who've been exploited or pushed to the edges, um, that even they prophesy. So in God's pursuit of us, in God's uh, desire to meet with us, I think sometimes we're used to looking up for God up there to come down and tell us or lift us up. And I think it would be sad to go your whole life and not hear the cry of God from below. <laughs> And so the, the dream of this series is very much for uh, all of us at Awaken to know that God is pursuing us, that God wants to meet us where we are. And uh, the spirit is pouring, or God is pouring God's spirit out so uh, we, we can trust in God's desire to meet us. So I'm going to begin uh, today's uh, sermon with a reading from Philippians. Now, this is a text you're all very familiar with, but I think it's the perfect place to kind of remind us that God sometimes speaks from the margins and not often from the center. So in Philippians, um, Paul's writing this letter to a, a church in Philippi, and he says, um, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Uh, so I like this idea of like not looking down at people, but looking up at people. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not re regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, like a special kind of death reserved only for the least of all people in society. Like Paul couldn't be crucified because he's a Roman citizen. Roman citizens weren't crucified. 
So he went all the way down. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, uh, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, and it's a profound text there. You can stay on the Philippians text because um, we know that in the Greco-Roman world, um, when you referred to Caesar, the king, uh, he was called the father, the father of Rome, uh, the patrofamilias, and we were all his children or his servants. And so the idea that Jesus prays, our father who art in heaven, would be radically subversive because the common sort of phraseology of the day would be um, our father who art in Rome, the Caesar. So you have that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, to the glory of God, the Father. Um, and I really i am struck a lot by this idea that um, God emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. So if a slave or an enslaved person were to prophesy or have a vision, it would be sometimes difficult to listen and trust because we want the prophecies to come from our educated, polished, successful people. We don't want the prophecy to come from someone who's way beneath us. And yet this text, I think, just sort of shouts from the margins that uh, you can learn about God from someone who appears in the form of a slave. That is the gospel and the wild subversive um, kind of message of our faith, of, of Christianity. And I think Jesus um, models for us, or, or Paul is uh, emphasizing the way that Jesus shows us what Christian discipleship looks like, that it's a, a movement down. Uh, it's not an, a, a transcendence up. And I think, um, uh, you know, as Baptists, we sometimes don't focus a lot on Holy Spirit theology. But when you look at traditions that really do, and I know some people before church were talking about the Hillsong documentaries and how your heroes sometimes fall and you're like, oh, I didn't realize it was that bad. But I think where we've sometimes gone wrong in the West or, or gone astray is believing that the Holy Spirit is going to lift us up out of the mundane experience of being human here with all of our struggles and fears and anxieties and exalt us to a place of power that the Holy Spirit will empower us. You know, we could become the really powerful ones and we could be the ones to elect the next president or, you know, pull the strings of the economy. Like the idea that the Holy Spirit wants to empower us to transcend or sometimes we get into thinking that the Holy Spirit um, is kind of like a lap dog and we can kind of whistle and then the spirit can like shine the light on us and all of a sudden we're on stage and we're creating this very captivating performance for the masses. And I think um, if, we, if we understand that the Holy Spirit is, is constantly revealing the, the love of God, which was revealed in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit probably isn't calling us to rise and transcend, but is perhaps calling us down um, calling us down to the place of, of humility and, and, and emptying. And so I'm reminded, I was reading uh, uh, a quote by a uh, Christian scholar, uh, an indigenous man, Robert Tubles, and I liked it very much. He, it was like a little quip, and I was like, oh, so clever. He said, um, when God calls, it's always collect. And I liked the idea that, um, and, and I, that, that strikes me as profound because um, my husband, David, has uh, worked as a mentor and a friend and like an older brother to an incarcerated uh, man who's been incarcerated in and out of uh, prison since he was 11 years old. And so sometimes we get collect calls and it's very exciting when we do because we worry about him all the time because sometimes he gets out of jail and then he AWOLs and, you know, he's very high risk for disappearing and not being seen again and not being looked for. 
So we worry about him a lot. And so when we get this collect call, we're very excited. And it's like, I don't care if it's like $20 on my visa. I just want to know you're alive. So I imagine God calling from prison, a collect call. And when I imagine that, uh, the call stories throughout the Bible really strike me as it's a call. And if you answer it, it will cost you. It, it isn't a kind of call you get, which comes with a deposit into your account. Sometimes it's a call um, downward. The God of our scriptures and our story is a subversive God. Um, this is not what ancient people, um, this is not the cosmology of, of any ancient religions or empire religions, the idea that God became nothing. Often um, like Greek and Roman and Egyptian and kind of Canaanite and Babylonian mythologies would have stories of their God rising to greatness. Uh, and yet we have this subversive God who ha was great, had greatness, could have exploited it, could have used it, but chose instead to empty him himself completely um, to the lowest point of society so that he could gather all of us from below into the arms of God and create a new people. So there's this very subversive uh, part of our text or, or like the heart of our, of our scriptures, of our story as Christians is this God um, who was great and became small. Um, I, want, I wonder if you remember, I'm going to just do a few little like kind of riffs on certain stories in the Old Testament that you are probably familiar with, but I always go back to the story of the Exodus. Um, you can imagine a time when these Egyptian people were kind of the dominant people, the dominant culture. The Egyptians would have been considered normal, good. The, the Egyptians wouldn't have been considered foreign or exotic or strange. They just would have been the norm, the, the good, the pure, the virtuous, the smart, the civilized. And then these enslaved Hebrews would be like, oh, these poor people need to learn from us how to be civilized. And if they work really hard, they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, they're kind of enslaved and working under oppressive conditions in order to build storehouses for the normal Egyptians. And I think, you know, we know that the Egyptians had many gods. They had a very established religion and, and pantheon. They had priests and priestesses and magicians and prophets. They had the whole system. They had a whole theology, very complex theology too. And so when Moses appears, um, they just summon their priests and their magicians, and they're able to kind of perform the same magic that Moses can um, for the most part. And they're kind of mocking, like, who's this Hebrew fugitive guy that we haven't seen in years, like literally 40 years? Like, what? You're nothing. And I, I just love in that narrative, we have this idea that God is the, a small God among great gods, that he's the God of the slaves, and no one even knows his name. The slaves don't even know his name. Um, and the whole book of Exodus is really God introducing himself. And in Exodus is where God gives his name. And so this idea that our story begins and God's claim on us begins with this idea that God was a small God among great Egyptian gods and slowly and subversively was able to confront the powers of Egypt to redeem the enslaved lowly Hebrews. So this idea that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, Jesus is Lord, not Pharaoh, not the king of Babylon, not the president of the United States or the you know, nation with the biggest military budget. It is uh, that God falls all the way down in love, uh, even to the place of enslaved people who have been crying out for a long time, no doubt, and wondering if there's a God who can hear. Um, and that is this subversive story. I'm not sure if you remember, like one of the very first stories in our entire Bible is about two brothers, Cain and Abel, uh, they've just been exiled from the beautiful, abundant Garden of Eden. And they're, they're sent out of the garden. And, and Cain and Abel, obviously, I think we can imagine, they live like right outside the gate. And they're trying to get back in. And they bring offerings. 
And Cain and Abel each bring um, an offering that is of equal worth. If you've ever studied Leviticus, fun things, you'll know that um, Cain's grain offering and Abel's meat offering are equal on the like hierarchy of offerings. But God chooses Abel's and this enrages Cain, it just enrages him and he can't handle it. And he, he murders his own brother because of the jealousy and the rage. And I used to be always kind of weirded out by that story. But I, when I learned that in the cultural context where that story was written, um, the dominant culture practiced what's called primogeniture, which is the preference of the firstborn son. That the firstborn son has a special sort of privilege in, among all the other children. Like if, if a father had four sons, when he dies, the inheritance would be split, divided by five, and the oldest would get two portions. Like, so the firstborn son is the, the, the father's like right-hand man, and he would get the access to the blessing or the wealth, or he'd get the first choice in a bunch of big decisions that your father makes. And this idea that in the very first scene in the entire biblical narrative, there's two brothers the firstborn son knows that he gets the blessing. He knows God chooses him. That's how it works. And then there's this sneaky kind of trickster God who's like, mm, Abel, I like Abel's. And if Cain doesn't unravel because he's just like an unhinged, deranged man. I think he unravels the way you and I unravel when someone who didn't work half as hard as we did to get where we are gets a raise. <laughs> that, that sense of being threatened that someone beneath you um, has taken claim of what you deserved. Uh, it enrages him. And in that story, it just circles throughout the entire biblical narrative. You'll remember it's, um, there's always brothers vying for God's blessing, and God chooses the youngest brother, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the hairy hunter, manly man. And then Jacob likes cooking and hangs out in the tent with his mother and has smooth skin. And God's like, Jacob. Uh, Joseph is the youngest brother, and his, his older brothers are all the responsible, hardworking, you know, blessed ones. And then here's Jacob in his coat of many colors, uh, dreaming dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. And of course, the older brothers are like, I would rather kill you than bow down to you because you were beneath me. And it's Joseph that God picks. Um, when King David was being anointed, remember before he became corrupted by power and made a lot of horrible, violent decisions, um, he was just a little shepherd boy. He was literally a nobody. When Jesse first came to anoint the king of Israel, um, Jesse, uh, David's father, didn't even consider David a human being. Like David wasn't even there. Like Jesse like sees all these brothers. He's like, oh, this one's tall and strong and has good shoulders. And God's like, no, not him. What about this one? What about this one? Gets to the end, none. And Jesse's confused because he knew that, or sorry, Samuel's confused that he knew, he knew it was one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel says to Jesse, like, is there anybody else? And God's, uh, Jesse's like, well, there's like one other person, but he's like, he's not the one. He's probably like 80 pounds soaking wet and he's out like, he's out shepherding. And God's like, that's the one. Pick him. He'll have no entitlement at all. He'll never imagine that he should tell people what to do and order people around. That's the one. Pick him. Pick the one from below. In, uh, when, when we think about um, women in the biblical narrative, um, often God picks the, the barren woman in a culture that privileges fertility. It's not the woman that has had all the children. So he picks you know, Rachel, uh, Rebecca, Sarah. Even Israel itself in the book of Isaiah is called the barren woman because Israel is constantly under the thumb of another nation. They're constantly the marginalized people, the occupied people, um, the crucified people. And they're even called uh, the barren woman in Isaiah 54. And God's like, you're my people. You're who I choose. In fact, throughout the scriptures, I'm almost done. I know I'm like, I will just stand up here for half an hour and tell you every story in the Bible. And then we'll get, we'll get to Revelation 3 and take communion and 
go home full. It'd be a great time for me. But um, I want to remind you that uh, in our Bible, there, there's two big books, um, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And sometimes, um, you know, these are the narratives and there's like genocide and violence and war. And it's like the Game of Thrones of the Bible. Um, and I, I, I heard Walter Brueggemann once give a talk on the Book of Kings, and he said it shouldn't be called the Book of Kings. It should be called the Book of the Irrelevance of the Kings, because God never speaks through the kings in the Book of Kings. He speaks from the margins through the prophet, the crazy-haired man who eats locusts and, you know, camel hair, and he has no money and no stocks and no property, uh, probably no education. He probably speaks with like a country accent, uh, and he comes from outside straight to the king. Um, in the same way Moses went to Pharaoh, like the prophet comes from among the enslaved people towards the powers that be, and his prophetic ministry is on behalf of those being oppressed by those in power. And so you, Elijah is one who comes from outside directly to the king with a word for the king. Um, Elisha, the same. The prophet Amos, the prophet uh, even Jeremiah is among the poor. Like the prophet speaks to the king. And I think sometimes as Christians in, in, in Calgary in 2023, we want God to be our king. Well, that was loud. Um, the king with power and military strength and wealth. Um, but then when the like weird person comes, we're like, who let this weirdo in? But the, the God of our story uh, speaks through the weirdo, often to those in power. And I think uh, John the Baptist is a great example of that, that John the Baptist was speaking outside the city or outside the empire. The prophet comes from outside, confronts those in the center. Paul's character uh, is, is uh, my favorite kind of example of this flip from like on the way up in your career and in your like spiritual career. I don't know. I'm like, am I a professional Christian? I think so. I, we don't call it that, but you know, in, in your career, uh, Paul uh, has to, he's rising up, uh, but he, he turns around and makes a radical sort of his, his discipleship journey is a downward uh, journey, not upwards. And here in, in the book of Philippians, where he wrote the, the Christ hymn, he says, more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And if you think about Paul, and a lot of people like love him or hate him, I mean, I don't know, I'm a woman pastor. And so Paul's words have been weaponized against me many times. And when I teach Paul uh, at, you know, Ambrose or Alberta Bible College, often people are like, I don't like Paul. Like, I like Jesus. I like the Gospels. Paul's too, I don't know, intense. But I love Paul. Um, the more I study the book of Acts, the more I, I just come to uh, respect him and, and love him so much. Because I think of where Paul began. In his, in his ministry. He sort of had the trifecta of privilege in that um, Paul was a, a man in a very patriarchal society. Paul was a Roman citizen. Jesus was not. So Paul was actually able to uh, appeal to the Supreme Court, whereas Jesus just got a local illegal trial in the middle of the night and was executed the next day like garbage being thrown out. But Paul's a Roman citizen. So Paul actually, when he's being uh, kind of in, in trouble with the law, He's like, you can't do this to me. I'm a Roman. And that's how they're like, oh, that's actually true. And he gets to travel all the way to Rome so that his case could be handled in the Supreme Court, which is how he plants churches on his whole journey towards his execution. But he's not crucified because he's a Roman citizen. 
And Paul is also among his own people, as among Jewish people, he is a Pharisee among Pharisees and highly esteemed as an expert of the scriptures, a spiritual authority figure that would be very used to walking into sort of Jewish spaces with and, and immediately receiving respect. A man, Roman citizen, Pharisee among Pharisees, he's got it all. But if, you, if you've ever read the book of uh, Acts and kind of studied the New Testament, you see that um, Paul ends up being completely rejected by his own Jewish people because of how much he's contradicted um, their understanding of the scriptures and their tradition. Paul ends up in a lot of community with women and doing a lot of work with women, and that would have been weird for him. And he's executed by Rome. He loses all of the privilege. He gives up his status as a Roman man. He gives up his status as a Jewish uh, spiritual authority figure. And he gives up his status as a patriarch. He never marries or has kids. He gives his life to planting churches and the majority of people who worked with him would have been women. And so I think his discipleship journey is this downward journey. And finally you meet this Paul who's like, I used to have a lot. I had a VIP access to a bunch of circles that most people don't get access to. But I consider all of that rubbish. I know nothing but Christ crucified. If Jesus can fall all the way down in love with the garbage of the world, then may I become the garbage of the world. Make me nothing so that I would meet God at the bottom. And so um, you can go to the next slide. In this series, um, my heart as your pastor has really been um, to see uh, the, these people, you, you all that I love so deeply, um, that you would know that God is pursuing you that God desires you, that God wants to meet with you. And this kind of Pentecost text um, is profound. It's political, it's jubilee, it's economic, it's all these things, but it's also deeply personal. And I think when we, when we consider the text from Joel 2, we have this idea that the Holy Spirit rushes in, like comes towards you. You don't have to get good enough and then make it halfway up and then God's willing to like stoop halfway down. Like it's not a meet in the middle. It's like, while we were yet sinners, the Spirit ran to you through mud, through whatever, just ran to you, like, you are mine, um, rushes in and pours out this idea that uh, the, the text, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that word pour out just is this image of radical generosity pouring out. It's not like I'm going to ration little bits of me on Sundays. And if you come enough Sundays in a row, then maybe you'll feel God's love. Or if you pray more or read your Bible more, then maybe it's this idea of pouring out that God pours himself out uh, for us and, and pours, um, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Uh, I loved uh, the sermon that Mike gave about this, the idea that all flesh, all of it, even the Hebrew midwife slaves or the youngest son or the nobody shepherd or the forgotten unnamed woman at the well, all flesh, not just those in universities and in the suburbs, but all flesh. And this idea that, um, and I thought this was really uh, profound and radical, um, Kathy gave the sermon that God calls us also from the future. Like we're a text-based people as Christians. We have our holy scriptures, which are very old, like thousands of years old. And so it's easy to be like, well, you have to go to the scriptures if you want to hear from God, because God speaks to us from the past. But the prophecy in Joel there is that your sons and daughters will prophesy, which is a way of saying the future generations will look back towards you and tell you what God is doing. You can look ahead. God will also speak from the future. The, the generations after us uh, will teach us. And I know right now I'm like the younger generation that's constantly trying to like convince my parents and my aunts and uncles to be like less racist. I, I don't know. You've been to family reunions. Like there's that kind of like, Ugh, why can't you guys just see the truth? 
But I know that the day is going to come 15, 20 years from now when uh, my 25-year-old daughter will be telling me things and I'll be freaked out by it. But this text reminds me that sometimes um, the younger generation is telling you what God is telling you. They're teaching you about God. And so you can listen to the future generations. And, and then um, the next part of it was this idea that uh, young men and old men will dream dreams and have visions, which I love this because I think of the older men in my life who I love and respect. And there's sometimes like there's a way things are done. <laughs> they're prim and proper and like they have decorum and this is how it works and it's predictable and it fits in an Excel, an Excel spreadsheet and we can make it make sense and it can be logical. And I love the idea of an old man having a dream and a vision and being like deeply unsettled by how unpredictable and new and this idea that God can speak to us from outside the perfectly ordered boxes of our tradition in dreams and visions. And then finally, um, the next section before they get into like, he also speaks from the sky and the land and the blood moon and kind of some apocalyptic kind of language but finally you have even even upon even my slaves will prophesy and so when, when i stand back and i see this text this pentecost text where the church is born like i think this text is like the mother that birthed the church and, and it's like god is coming for you god's coming for you you don't have to do anything to be good enough and deserve that. God wants to meet you. God wants to um, um, hold you tenderly and, and, and with an extravagant compassion and meet you where you're at. And if God has to speak to you from um, dreams and visions or speak to you from, from young children or speak to you from people on the margins, like God is calling at us from all these places. Uh, and sometimes we miss that because we're looking up. Where are you? And we're trying to rise up and get promoted and climb the ladder and meet God and hope that we'll get good enough and pure enough and perfect enough to meet God. And our scriptures tell over and over again of a God who's like, I'm down here. I'm down here. Um, and so I just, um, I, I wanted to, uh, the next text on here, to just remind us of this gospel. Um, the book of Luke begins literally with Mary's song, Young Mary, speak of someone who doesn't have access to power. And in her song, I just put a little bit of it here because um, it's not Christmas time. So I think it, we're not allowed to talk about the Magnificat in July, a joke. She's pregnant right now, if you think about it. She's like almost in her second trimester in the wheel of the year, right, Mary? Okay, so my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. What a trip for Mary. It's like, I've never been called blessed ever before. I'm like at the bottom of the social ladder. I'm constantly looking up and blessing people above me, hoping it'll get me like food and safety and like life. Um, but here now people will look at Mary and call her blessed because God's spirit's about to flip the script. And later in that uh, song she breaks out into, she says, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And what I love about this so much is when I was like younger and like just discovering Marxism, <laughs> like a young Bible college student, I was like, we need to care for the poor. Um, I did, I had this kind of militant kind of anger towards rich people and, and, and full people. And uh, God's really worked in me in that way in the last decade i like to think um and what i've seen in setting the scriptures is that god isn't trying to bring the mighty down because he like hates the mighty and he's like ha, 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 take that um i think god's like i love the mighty very much i love them and i know something about where joy is that they don't know 
and it might feel painful at first, but I'm going to call you down from your throne where, so you could meet me down here and you could make new friends down here. It's like if you, you come down and you will discover the love of God and the life of God, and in a sense, the sense that the mighty does not know the gospel uh, is a collect call. I think that God is calling us down always from our, our thrones so that he could meet with us and, and teach us about the table and the place of joy and delight. God isn't sending the rich away empty because he hates the rich, um, because he wants you to experience open hands for the first time that you might receive the gift of being vulnerable, the gift of having needs, the gift of having to make friends. And all of this is this love story where God's like, I love you. And if I'm bringing you down, like I brought Paul down, or I'm lifting you up, like I lifted Mary up, I'm bringing you to the same table. There's a place for you. And so I will just share um, something about Anna. I had to just text her. I was like, you're not a church. Can I tell the story about you? And then uh, we're going to take communion together as a church. But I first met Anna um, like seven years ago, uh, maybe like six. I was pregnant with Raven or maybe newly not. Uh, but she was like this very shy young girl in my one of my classes at Ambrose. Um, but like her dad's a prof and her mom's an alliance pastor. And so I was intimidated by her. <laughs> Don't ever think your Bible college prof is like the really powerful one in the room. They're likely the most insecure and desperate for your approval. So don't tell them I said that, but sometimes. Uh, and, and she asked if she could meet with me after class one day. And I, she was very shy and I hadn't heard, you know, known her very well, but she kind of took me out in the hallway and, and we sat down. I was like, yeah, what's up? And she sort of very timidly and slowly started telling me a bit about her story. Um, and it felt like a confession. Like she was like letting me in on like a, a secret. And, and the idea was like, you know, I, I'm part of the LGBTQ community. And it was sort of this like, is that allowed? Is that okay? Uh, I'm sorry. Like it was like an apology and something, somehow it just struck me because I was like, wait a minute, what? You are? Why are you here? And I didn't mean that in like a, an aggressive way, but I'm like, how many times in your life have you been hated and rejected and like prayed over and tried to have demons, like how much conversion therapy, like how much have you been rejected by your people? And you're still here, you're at Bible college taking Bible classes. Like, isn't it, wouldn't you be happier if you just like left this all behind because people are so mean to you here? Like I, this is like just my paraphrase right now. I'm sure I said it more eloquently. I hope so, maybe not. Um, but like, it was wild because she was like, well, I really love Jesus and I really love the story. And I, I want, I want, I, 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 I want to be here. And I know I've had to go over obstacles and obstacles and obstacles, and I've had to forgive and forgive and forgive again and forgive again and trust and trust that even if you have to sneak me in under the table, there'll be crumbs. And I remember just getting goosebumps and just looking at her and just suddenly being like, wow, you know more about Jesus than I ever will because you know what it's like to be rejected in your hometown, to constantly forgive and constantly be faithful. And you've had to work here, work so hard to be here and I've not really had to work at all. And I think that I need to learn from you. And like, there was just this moment and I, I don't know, I, I think I was just trying to be like a, a, a pastoral person and it, it moved her a lot. And two weeks ago we were working in the garden here and just sharing and being vulnerable. And I was, feeling sorry for myself as I sometimes do because I go to other churches that are really big and there's like 400 people and I listen and I'm like that preacher that pastor guy was cool but like is he that much cooler than me like sometimes there's only six people at the church where I pastor and 
I don't know, aren't I like kind of that good? And I get all compare <laughs> Why haven't I risen to greatness? And I was sort of lamenting that like, well, that's okay. Maybe God's called me to like not be great. Poor me, poor me. Nobody comes to awaken, just these people. Where are all the cool people? Uh, you know, I was feeling really self-pity. And then she, we were kind of gardening and then she stopped and she just kind of like put the shovel down and she was like, Michaela, you saved my life. If that's the only thing you do at the end of your life, I hope you feel like a legend. And I, and I remember it, it just shook me and it just woke me up from this dream about power and glory and grandeur. And it was like, oh yeah, I meant that, I meant that Anna, that you, know, you, you, you would be like a prophet coming from outside the parameters of what I thought was right and wrong and good, good and bad. And you came and, and then years went by and she sort of showed up at Awaken and continues to love Awaken and do a bunch of invisible tasks and invisible labor. And, 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 and she just serves and she's like, I'm honestly just so glad that I'm here. And I think sometimes Jesus isn't like the cool person with tattoos at the front. Sometimes Jesus is the one making sure there's toilet paper in the bathroom and just glad to be here. And it reminded me that um, God wants to meet with us. Um, God isn't calling us down because God is mad at us. The Holy Spirit isn't convicting us of sin as like a punishment. The Spirit's like all these things you're holding on to are, are keeping you from me and my love. And I want to open your fingers and open your hands I want you to fall in love. I want you to come all the way down. I want you to look for me on the margins. I want you not to be sad that you weren't invited to the cool person party. I want you to be super grateful that you were invited to this other place that didn't feel cool. I think that God speaks from the margins. And if we could imagine that as Christians, that God is actually speaking to me from the people who I imagine are below me, then God would be talking to me all the time. <laughs> Imagine if Jesus actually was like, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Like, yeah, what? I could go meet with Jesus right now. Wow. Uh, and, and so I think there's this, this gospel message here that God wants to meet with us. Um, lastly, in this slide, I just want to um, emphasize, I'll read this and then I'm going to pray for us and we'll do take communion together. Um, in Luke 6, I love this. These are the Beatitudes in Luke. And I just think it, it, it encourages me that when you feel like you're not enough or you're not as successful as you should be or as popular as you should be and you're not getting the invitations to the cool places, um, I love that the God of the universe, um, the immortal king, son of Mary, is like the blessing is down here. It's okay. Uh, Jesus uh, looked up at his disciples, never down. And he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So where is the kingdom of God? I don't know. Where are the poor people? They seem to have it. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, when you don't get the invite. When they exile, uh, revile you and, and defame you on account of the Son of Man, rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets was the word of God breaking into community. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. And I think like, it's so important to have the entire text up because he's like, you will be hungry. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, wait, 
but the hungry are blessed. So sign me up. Take it all. Take it all. If the blessing is there among the poor and the rejected and uh, the lonely and the grieving, then break my heart and take my money, God. Come like a thief in the night. Take it all. I've been trying to meet you my whole life. And there's this gospel message. He's like, listen, you're competing with your enemies. You're trying to rise above them and prove that you're better and you're more successful. But maybe learning to come their way and reconcile and humble yourself is the place you meet Jesus. So don't try and do good to the people whose respect you're coveting. Turn and do good to the people who are coveting your respect and turn the script. So I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to uh, serve each other communion. Um, so please uh, bow your heads with me. We pray, Holy Spirit, that we would know in our own bodies that you desire to pour yourself out in our midst. I pray that you would help us um, not to come to you uh, timidly and sensing that we're a burden or we're too much. I pray that we would come like a little kid demanding love and affection and cuddles immediately. I pray that you would make us like babies again, just full of need and wonder and joy. Help us see your love and your tenderness, the abundance of your concern for us. I pray that you would come to us in dreams and visions, that you would come to us in the voice of children, in the voice of elderly people, in the voice of disabled people. I pray that you would come to us uh, in the form of uh, queer people in our midst. Show us, open our ears to see you crying out for us. I pray, oh God, that you would feed us and, and help us to see that it might not be at the king's table. I pray that you would see that you have already set up a table in the poor part of town. I pray that you would help us humble ourselves and become guests at the tables we have avoided. I pray that we would learn to look for you again, that we would learn to hope for you again, and that you would grant us enough humility and tenderness to be surprised by you again. Fill us with wonder for the world that you love and call us on that journey to follow you down. We pray in the name of Jesus, crucified and risen. Amen. As a benediction for our gathering today, a poem by Malcolm Geit called Angels Unaware, uh, based on the text from Hebrews 13, which reads, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Some people say that life is just a given thing, but you and I both know by whom it's lent and that it's right here in the dirt where we both have been loved and hurt, that love himself has come to pitch his tent. Sometimes we're in the fields of holy roses. Other times we're rolling in the tears, breaking bread and sharing wine. Did I feel your hand touch mine or did we both touch angels unawares? Abraham's down by the oaks of Mamre and Joseph dreams beside an empty barn. There's a woman by the well with dreams no man can tell, though a broken man might keep her safe from harm. There's someone else inside this fiery furnace and Jacob's gazing up at those endless stairs. We are wounded on the road, but we share each other's load and make each other angels unawares. Everybody backs into the future. Everyone's just feeling for it blind. Sometimes we get lost and the threads of our lives get crossed, but I'm sure glad yours got tangled up with mine. The day is gone and I know I should be going. There's barely light enough to say our prayers. Ah, but give me leave the while for to turn and see you smile, 
to leave to love like angels unawares, to leave and be loved by angels unawares. May you go from this place expecting to meet God in surprising places. May you say yes uh, to the strangers with a word for you. Go in peace, and I can't wait to gather around this table with you again. <laughs>